Welcome to my den. Y'all, it has been a long time since I've published an episode, and I promise you there has been very good reason. I'm in the middle of a lot of piloting and innovative testing on this venture that is working behind the scenes that I haven't told you about. Secret, secret. But I promise this episode that you're going to hear today is worth the wait because I got to talk with the amazing Dr. Carlos Baradello. I hope I got his name pronounced right. He and I had a fascinating conversation about the shift from native local to native global, which was his reframing from his own experience of the native analog versus native digital concept. Carlos has traveled the globe and now he has founded a venture called Sausalito Ventures that connects Latin American business owners, startup entrepreneurs to resources across the globe to help them get their businesses off the ground. And today is a fascinating conversation about what the barriers to entry are for Latin American entrepreneurs, both in their own countries and when they come here, the differences in culture, and really Dr. Baradello's perspective from teaching at Whole International Business School for many years, and also being a board member, consultant, and advisor for all sorts of businesses, um, including startups and all the way to corporate clients like E&J Gallo Winery. So Carlos is just cool. You're going to have a blast listening to this today. And if you want more of his insight into the future of innovation and education and his just his thoughts on the, the world, go to his website. He's got a blog that he updates. It's called, it's just Carlos Baradello. Uh, dot com. And Baradello is spelled B-A-R-A-D-E-L-L-O. I hope you will check that out. Let's get into it. So hang on to your seats or your time machines if you're cool like that. And join me in my living room with the amazing Dr. Baradello. You're listening to Native Digital, Native Analog, the show where we unpack the collisions and commonalities between my generation and yours. I believe that if you don't have a native digital on your board of directors, your leadership team, or at least one you pay to pester you like a fly in your ear, your business won't survive. Let's change that today. All right. Carlos, I'm so glad to have you, and I just want to kick us off with a, a question that's been on my mind since the months ago that we first chatted. So I did a little research, and I love your fund's essential mission of helping entrepreneurs in Latin America to get off the ground. And I would love to hear your story of how, do you, go, how you got into that, but just this first question, what barriers do you see that Latin American founders or entrepreneurs encounter that those of us who start, you know, in the United States of America don't? Well, I think, I think that there are objective and subjective barriers. Um, and we should talk about both of them. Uh, objective barriers are things that we take for granted in, in the developed economies whether it is in, in Northern Europe or, or the United States or other parts of the world. 
which is you have a rule of law, you have predictable policies that they don't change, you have an infrastructure that works for the most part, etc. So you have a set of enabling conditions that facilitate the creation of a startup. And then there is a subjective uh, uh, barriers, and one of them is the global mindset. And global mindset means different things. If you are in Latin America, you think that you are taking a global mindset because you are looking for your uh, venture to scale into the neighbor countries. But to tell you the truth, they don't is not you're not really challenging yourself that if you're a company in chile and it's trying to go to germany or you're a company in argentina and trying to come to the united states or canada and it is a, a mindset because it requires the ability to speak different languages to to go into different cultures to change the way your product your service and yourself present to the market. So those are characteristics that I think that the, the Latin American entrepreneurs face. These are the challenges that they face in order to, to become global companies. I'm so intrigued by, well, so many parts of what you just said, but one in, in particular, which stands out to me, and it's this idea of an entrepreneur needing to change the way they present themselves, not just their, the language or whatever, but I, I want to dive into this a little bit more. I, I just, um, Carlos had a founder on a couple of weeks ago, and his name is Yuri Filipchuk, and he is he was in Ukraine at the time of recording during the war. Like he's, you know, it, inside of, um, he was in Kiev. Anyway, he talked about this idea of as a founder from Ukraine, when he goes out to raise money, you know, in America or Germany or the UK, he has to actually change how, you know, he, he has to basically overcome a lot of these stereotypes or things about, you know, the a Ukrainian or Russian entrepreneur that people assume about him. So it's actually caused him to change sometimes how he talks or interacts. Is that sort of what you're describing in the same way for Latin American founders, or is it different? No, it's, it's similar and, and maybe more because uh, there are certain code of conduct. There is some business protocols that you need to embrace if you're going to do business globally, right? Um, and, and, and we teach that in the business school. Uh, you know, a small talk before a meeting. In in Latin America, the small talk may be go on for half an hour, whether it's not acceptable to be more than for a couple of minutes. Okay. Uh, punctuality. Uh, people expect you to be on time. And in Latin America, oftentimes, if you are fighting minutes, 10 minutes late, is perfectly acceptable. Uh, there are those things which are, I would say, cultural adjustments, but then there are the more significant part, which is uh, give me your business speech in 10 minutes and tell me exactly what you want and what you need from me 
with very clear terms. Don't leave it open for me to connect the dots. Okay. Uh, let me give you another example, which I think is quite interesting. If you ask, and I have lived in the United States for many years, if you ask a mother about a characteristic of the son, it's likely that an American mother will say, I want my child to be aggressive. Okay. It, that would not be a value in Latin America. So you're saying just, and I want you to continue here because this is so good, but what you're basically describing is what manifests itself in business, say in a pitch room, comes from the values that a mother might have or a father might have for their child from a very early age. So things like an American mother would like to see a son be aggressive or courageous or, you know, be willing to take risks. What would those, what would the equivalent values in a Latin American culture be for what the, the parents might want for their son? Well, it's hard for me. I, I haven't, I can only reflect on my own personal experience and, and the experience of the people I grew up with. But it's, it's very different to say, do the best to your abilities and eventually you will be recognized. So the recognition is a consequence of a behavior and a performance. But you're not constantly broadcasting to the world you know, I did it and I'm very good at it, okay? Which there is an, also an element of humility is also plays a role in, in that sort of behavior. Uh, what we have seen in, in our fund, and by now we're fundraising in the third fund and we have invested in about 40 different startups, is that the companies that tend to have a leg up are those that the founders have had global education. It has been a very clear to us that when you have the, the founding team, which typically is two or three people, if they have had the opportunity to do an MBA in the United States or to do the undergrad in Europe or something like that, then it brings a global flexibility in their mindset. This is such an interesting concept because I've often wondered, let, let's take your, your firm as an example. So you, to be clear, you invest, your firm, your fund invests only in Latin American founders. Is that right? We do have, yes, the, the answer is generally correct. We do invest in foreign funders, funders outside Spanish-speaking Latin America, but for companies that have the, in the top goals, the Latin American market. Which makes complete sense. I mean, that's an incredible place to tap into, and there's so much, there's such a wealth of knowledge that I feel like gets ignored by most most ventures. So here's my thought process. With your specific fund that's investing in these Latin American entrepreneurs, do you find that you're able to invest in founders who do retain a lot of those 
cultural values. So, you know, maybe do, do you force them into a 10 minute pitch or do you have time for small talk? You know, if they have a, a global global education, they've been exposed to other cultures, they, they know multiple languages. Do you allow them when they're pitching to you to, to follow, you know, the, the sort of cultural norm that's in Latin America? Or do you, you know, encourage them to think about how would this be done if we were pitching to a, you know, a fund in New York or in San Francisco? I think, I think, a, let's see, in terms of we invest in companies that can provide great return to our fund. So let's not lose focus what we are about. We are about investing in entrepreneurs who are going to develop great companies and the great companies will be eventually recognized by the market and will be sold, will be acquired by, some, by a buyer who is going to produce great multiple to the fund. So first thing first, that's what we are about. Now, we have taken a, an investment thesis that of investing in Latin entrepreneurs. Why? Because we believe that what it takes in Latin America to, to develop a company is less amount of money than what it will take in Palo Alto, in Silicon Valley. But at the same time, if this company explodes and become globally successful, they will command valuations similar to the valuations of the company that was founded in Silicon Valley. So it's the whole principle, buy cheap, sell expensive, right? That's the, the basic principle to make money. Now, in, you, in that principle, Given that we have said we are investing in, in Latin American founders, for the most part, there are exceptions, eh, we, have, we have to be painfully aware of the culture of Latin America and the risks that it takes to invest in Latin America. So as a result of that, of course, we, we don't have a personality change. We are still Latins. We... We do a small talk and we do all the things and we have different outlets that we provide virtually. We have a founders group in, in WhatsApp. We have meetings and gatherings that we produce several times a year, virtually and now in person uh, with, with our founders. So the, we have all those outlets, but when the moment comes to pitch, and to present, then we follow the global protocols because we want them to be prepared for the different markets, whether it's in Europe, in the United States or elsewhere. Thank you for that. I, I ask this from a heart of, well, first of all, I'm one quarter Cuban and my family is, you know, my biological grandfather was Cuban, a little bit of El Salvadoran, but I never grew up in a culture of, you know, because I never knew my biological grandfather. I never grew up in Latin culture. However, I've traveled extensively in Latin America and South America. And every time I'm there, 
it there's so much richness that I think our world of business, the way you know I've grown up in in America with a fast paced, you know, constant focus on efficiency, all of that happening around me. I think there's so much we could learn from how a, a founder from a different country might approach the same process. So when I first you know came across you, Carlos, and what you were doing with the fund, I thought. Gosh, like this is this is a huge, huge needed market that, I, and I hope that some of these founders who clearly have been successful. I saw you have is it four exits from the from the companies that you've invested in, so you've already had four exits. Like clearly, there's there is an incredible pool of talent. I see it every time that I that I go to these countries. And yet, of course, the barriers and what it takes to, say, go from uh, being a founder in Colombia to coming to the U.S. and having the same sort of valuations or, you know, the same access to resources, that looks very different. Um, so this is this is mind opening. And it, it makes me want to ask, like, how did you get into venture? What's your story of getting up to this point? Where did you grow up and and how did you how did you get to where you are now? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I grew up in, in Argentina in, of Italian parents. And my parents emigrated when they were very young from northern Italy to, to Argentina. And I think uh, it's a story of, of socioeconomic diversity, the fact that I grew up in an immigrant family, very low, low, low middle class, I think that it was more our mindset about being middle class and our economic means. And my family had a small shops. My father had a laundry and a cleaning, dry cleaning service. My mom had like a, a general store. And a, growing up there, you, you get exposed to some basic business principles and some work ethic that carry throughout your your life i think i think the turning point for my personal story was uh, given that my dad only had third grade elementary school and my mom had finished elementary school but that was it yeah, the turning point for me was the ability to go to the university in argentina which it was not obvious during high school that my parents could afford to send me, but they, with great sacrifice, that they did. And that was an enabler. Education is a great enabler, and certainly it was for me. I studied electrical engineering in, in Argentina. And then there was a, a significant second turning point when I was elected to, with a full scholarship to get my master's degree in the Netherlands. And it was significant, not just because of higher education, because you can study uh, what I study there in many other places, but it was the fact that we were 28 students from 20 different countries. And this was in the in the second half of the 70s uh, when people was were starting to talk about globalization and but to have a global experience sharing your classroom 
with people from so many different nationalities. Today, I would say it's normal in the school where I teach is, is often the case that if you have 30 people, you have 20 different nationalities. But in the 70s, that was unique. And I think that that prepared me so well. And the fact that I have to learn English because my English was very poor when I arrived in the Netherlands, the classes were in English. I have to learn English there and then relate to people that were very different to each other. Uh, I think that that was a, maybe one of the those experiences that it really turned my life. And from there, I enabled me to get another scholarship to get my PhD at Carnegie Mellon here in the States. And then uh, but the rest is history. No, It's just working hard and, and getting some lucky breaks. That is amazing. And, and it's so interesting, too, what you're describing with your story, Carlos. Like, as you mentioned, in the 70s, having a global classroom or global exposure was pretty unheard of for the average person, whatever country you lived in. And now I look at my generation and, you know, the students you teach and globalization is in our hands, you know, every day. And anyway, it's cool to see how in such a short period of time, we've we've made, we've accelerated the rate of globalization to where someone could never leave their hometown and they still have access to every culture they could possibly want to know about in the palms of their hands. And to me, that's like breathing. But to talk to someone like you who went through a time where that didn't exist, I can see why, you know, a lot of folks who come on the show that we we talk about the shift from, you know, native analog to native digital and just how big of an advantage it is to have these young students coming in who already have a global perspective, even if they've only traveled within their countries just based on what they have access to and the the content and the the resources and access, you know, access to meeting friends online from all different countries. So it's... Well, I think, I think it, it, it would be interesting you talk from native digital or native analog to native digital. I would say from a parallel to that is from na native local to native global, right? I love that. And to be uh, today, I would argue that for the most part, people are born global. This was not the case at the time that I grew up in a small village in Argentina, where my horizon was only 30 miles around me. That's as far as I could see, okay? Because of the communication means and the ability to travel were so much limited at the time. And I also want to reflect on something that to me was a, another transformational moment. A, and it has to do with diversity. Because I grew up in Argentina in a very homogeneous village. In, in this village, most people, 80, maybe even 90%, were Italian immigrants. We were all Caucasian, white. 
we were all Roman Catholic. We were all smell garlic because we all eat Italian food. <laughs> okay. So it was a very homogeneous type of society. And suddenly, I am in, in, in the Netherlands, a total foreign country, but it, there is this bubble of 28 students from 20 different countries. And you're the only That's, one who smells like garlic. <laughs> and I am the only one to smell garlic, but suddenly I am with a Pakistani that I smell curry, and I don't know where this is coming from. And, you know, Italians were always dressed conscious, even today, and suddenly you see people dressed completely different. And then they are so different that the first thing is you try to reject that. And you try, I, I try to hang out with the Irish and with the Canadian because they were much more like me. Right? But then being a year and a half together, and we suddenly we start knowing about the other person, and we see the other person helping me when I need something, a problem with the homework, and now suddenly I see them that they have insights that I don't have. Because remember, this is electrical and computer engineering. This is hard science. So when we are solving a problem, the results are clustered all very close to each other. It's not like the social sign that you say white and I say black and we probably both are right. Okay. Here in the hard science, you know, the result is either 1, 1.1, 0.99, but the results are all clustered there. And suddenly when you see somebody who is able to solve faster than you, better than you, and you struggle with the solution, then you become curious. And now the, that curiosity leads you to get to know the other person better or to respect the person and look beyond the dress or the smell or what have you, the fashion statement that they make. And, and the discovery piece to me, it was a piece of discovery of valuing the other person and and to respect the other person because of the just the, the human nature of it it was a journey for me and it was a, a it was not an obvious journey today diversity is 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 in everybody's vocabulary and i think is 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 much more part of the culture as it was for my time but what you're sharing is so crucial for people to remember, I mean, for me to remember as, you know, being born into the generation, as you put it, is natively global. It's very difficult. And I think, Carlos, honestly, one of the reasons that this barrier and the reason I have this show, the reason there's this barrier that's so massive between this native digital and native analog perspective is because native digitals have never had to go through that difficulty you just described of dealing with being in a homogenous sort of society and then, you know, suddenly experiencing diversity or globalization. So when we encounter someone who has not yet really stepped over that barrier, so for example, I live in the South and there are still people here who think that think that there's no need for diversity or different perspectives. 
I know people down the street who have never traveled outside of a couple states radius. They've never been out of the country. They've never even traveled to the other side of the U.S. So that still exists in in America. And of course, I'm sure it exists in other places too. So when my generation encounters someone who thinks like that, the conflict's a whole lot bigger than it could have been if we also understood the sort of mental hurdles that people who have not had exposure to this globalized world, especially, you know, thinking in my case, grandparents, you know, who have not had that exposure, um, that then we could have, you know, the conflict is bigger, whether it's in parenting or in um, education, whether it's in politics, like there's so many points of conflict because we have these fundamentally different perspectives. So let me ask you this, when you were in that mindset and you were, you encountered the guy who smelled like curry instead of like garlic or the ones who dress differently. I love garlic, by the way. Um, so when you encountered that, did you find there were other students who did not lean into the curiosity, who decided to just stick with the people who were most similar to them? And how did that affect their, uh, you know, their ability to, you know, succeed or grow or learn within the context of the MBA? Uh, this was a, what I call truly a transformational experience. And we shouldn't use that word lightly uh, because as you were talking about people that you know in the South, we all need to be transformed. Uh, in my case, and in the, in, in the case of this group, transformation was a little bit easier. A, because we were thrown in this, this bubble where we have to live with each other, okay, for the next 18 months. Second is, there was a common vehicle that it was succeeding in the classes, in engineering classes, okay? So that brought us together in an environment where different from American education where the students tend to compete with each other. In Europe, it's more the class compete against the professor. So there is much more collaboration. So the learning environment is set up that there is more collaboration, more peer-to-peer learning to the student. But to do peer-to-peer learning, I have to interact with people that were very different to me. And they have different. And there it grew up the respect. And the respect didn't come because I respect somebody from Singapore or Indonesia. It came because I respect the way you approach or solve this problem. And that led me to get to know the person as a human being. And then it started helping me to look beyond the dressing, the smell, the religion. You know, I have never met a Muslim before or a Hindi before. So these were all things that they helped me to overcome those barriers. And and I'm not embarrassed to confess that at that time they were objective barriers because I didn't know any better. 
what you're describing is is almost like what we see when a war happens and suddenly all these countries, like, you know, both the world wars, you see all these countries who have different cultures, different languages, all this come together against a common, you know, enemy or common threat. And you watch countries unite over this common threat or even just unity happen within a country. Like what, you know, my grandparents described happened during World War II here in America, where everyone joined together and suddenly people were, they had this common goal. And I'm very visual. So as you were describing what happened in this MBA class with these 20 people who were from vastly different cultures, it gave me this idea. And and I don't know why more communities don't do this, but I wonder if there would be a way for communities to get people together who come from all these different backgrounds and put them on a project where there is a common, it doesn't have to be a common enemy, but some sort of common objective and see if the people who've had these barriers with diversity or thinking, or maybe they're not as well-traveled, could come together and learn from each other because they do have a common goal. And and this would probably just apply to, you know, me living in the South, but I find there's so often, you know, when it comes to, of course, the election season right now, which is happening, there's so often people who get so siloed into their own groups of people they've been together with, oftentimes, sometimes since high school or college. And they, you know, in the South here, there are these groups, they're mostly all, they've lived in Asheville, which is where I am, their whole lives. You know, they have gone to the same church for 20, 30 years. They're all the same color. You know, they all have very similar backgrounds. Most of them came from two-parent households, you know, in the suburbs, middle-class families. And I I just find that some of these people, you know, who are, whether it's voting one way or putting certain community organizations together, they're missing an entirely different perspective from people of other backgrounds or even economic backgrounds. Like what, it, what does it look like when you grow up in a single parent household and you, you know, your, your childhood, your elementary education looks very different because of that. Like what perspectives could you bring to someone who didn't? Anyway, those sorts of conversations of not pitting against each other, but coming together in a small groups, 20, 30 people and saying, what can we commonly work toward together? as a way of finding common ground would be like the bedrock of how our society here in America could become more unified. But very few communities engage in that, it seems. It, it seems to me that, it, I, I, and I agree with you, is that we have become very polarized by broadcasting and exacerbating what's wrong with me. But and clearly there are many things wrong with me and there are many things wrong with you and if anything wrong with everybody else. And if we focus on that, then we become very polarized and very divided. Okay? At the same time, if we identify a common challenge, and we have so many of them, and we work together as we did in the Netherlands when I was at school there, that was a common challenge that was to finish, okay? And we were thrown, all thrown in the frying pan where we all came from a different, vastly different curriculum, 
Okay, yeah, we have all have engineering degrees, but what engineer degree means in Mumbai and what it means in Guatemala are very different. And we're all thrown together. We didn't have the requisite for certain classes, okay, because it's impossible to harmonize, you know, 28 different curriculum from 20 different nationalities. So we have to overcome. I mean, I knew that I couldn't finish certain classes because I missed two prerequisites. And it was sent to the help to this day of this Pakistani a classmate who really helped me to overcome that. So these shared challenges help us the, to bring the best of each one of us. Instead of what going to the name of your show, digital technologies, oftentimes help to exacerbate the worst of us. The most polarizing, my statement is, the more, you know, off the chart, off the wall, more retweets, more likes, get a reinforcement of that behavior. Thank you for that. Yes. And to your point, as this whole conversation is, is, is going in two different, very important directions, which is digital can divide us, polarize it. Me media can point out the differences, capitalize on those, right? And at the same time, digital can globalize us, can bring us new perspectives. And so what I believe is that you and I having conversations like this, where we are coming from different native points of view, but we're all able to use this tech to either divide us or unite us is so powerful. And that's why I'm so grateful, you know, me being a native digital to have tech like this that we can use for good. Um, but I do want to shift gears a little bit because I know you you clearly have extensive history in education. And remind me what your PhD is in? A PhD was in, in electrical and computer engineering. Okay. So you, you have, of course, extensive education from many different countries, and I don't. So I wanted to shift gears and, and ask you this. So... About 63% of Gen Zers in Western countries, so I believe this study included the U.S., Canada, the U.K., and possibly parts of Germany and France. But it was mainly, you know, talking about students, not, not of course, in countries that are, um, you know, in developing areas, etc. But about 63% of Gen Z is saying that we no longer see the value in college and are open to another form of learning to gain the skills that we need to be successful. So here's my question. I am, you know, I've, I've been talking, I had Ted Dintersmith on the show a few weeks ago, which was a fantastic conversation about just the education system, not just college, but looking at, you know, elementary all the way through high school education in America and, and the problems with it because of politics and all of this. But my, my question is, given that so many of Gen Z is questioning the value of a college degree here, which we could have, we could have a conversation about that. But my question is about other countries. So in your experience, like looking at 
you know, Latin American countries or other other countries that you work with, what do you find is the purpose of a degree in those countries and how might that differ or be similar to the experience of an American, you know, American student who goes to a four-year university? It's an excellent question and uh, the, the problems are very similar. I wouldn't say that in Latin America, sure, there is very unique set of circumstances. They are different from if you are in Massachusetts. But the problem is that the four-year, five-year college education, the problem is with the college education, not with education. Education is necessary, and we need education in our life journey. What has happened is that as we have seen most industries being disrupted, there are a number of industries that have avoid disruption. And these tend to be the oldest industries. These oldest industries because they were at the beginning of time and they had been around for hundreds, if not thousands of years, like healthcare, education, legal, and so forth. And we can talk about the five that I have that I claim that they have avoided disruption. Education was one of them. And it was the pandemic that triggered the disruptive process in education. So what happened is that the four-year college, it made total sense, you know, in, in an America coming out of the Second World War. Today, it doesn't. For most people, it, it is always people that make sense to go for four-year college education. But for most people, it turned out to be too expensive. It takes too long of a time commitment. I have to commit for four or five years. Technology is changing too fast. The skills that I'm going to gain are not necessarily the skills that I'm going to need five years later or six years later. In addition, the liberal art type of college education oftentimes doesn't give me employable skills. Then I have a situation where the employment for life has disappeared. So my employment journey is going to be maybe a year or two years, or maybe a freelance. I want to have a portfolio of activities which is going to be demanding new skills because as I become obsolete, because certain technologies uh, become obsolete or certain business fail, a new business come up, is going to require a constant reskilling and upskilling in my professional journey. And I haven't finished yet because then you have a situation where life expectancy grow. So, Hannah, the people in your generation should expect to live past 100 years. Okay? Because that's the way it typically every 10 years, we add a couple of years to life expectancy. And at the same time, the people in your generation shouldn't expect to 
start collecting social security or some kind of pension scheme until you are 75 or 80, right? Because you can only retire at 60 if you promise to die at 80. Right. <laughs> but if, if you are going to live past 100, maybe you cannot retire until you are 80 years old. And the same rules don't apply, right? If your whole society is living 10 or 20 years more on average than they were a generation ago, then you're not paying for the next generation, you know, benefits. No, but it's much worse than that because fertility rate is coming down. So if you look at the fertility rate in the most advanced economies of the world, let's take Japan. you have an inverted pyramid. You have very few children at the base of the pyramid contributing into social security. And then you have people at the the other end of the pyramid who refuse to die because longevity is longer and longer. So this set almost the perfect storm for the current educational model. So what I'm telling you is that people will not do what I did. I went 12 years to university nonstop. And then you graduate thinking, I know it all. I don't need to go back. Your generation will go to college 10, 12 years, but it will be in a small chunks in your professional journey. And your professional journey goes from 20 years old to 80. So you have 60 years. And every five years, seven years, you will have to reinvent yourself. And for that, your education is going to be your companion, giving you just in time the new skills that you need. So what I'm hearing you say... Carlos, which this this is a brilliant way of painting this picture, what you just said. What I'm hearing you say is if my generation kowtowed to what all of, you know, many people that I've had um, conversations with who and consulted, if I count if, if my generation said, we're going to do things just like our parents, we're going to go to school, you know, 10, 12 years, we're going to take on these student loans, we're going to assume we get, we get education, then we get a job that we stay in for 30 years. What you just said is we're doomed if we follow that perspective because just from the very nature of life expectancy going up and fertility rates or at least the number of, of children being born every year going down, if my generation did not adapt how we were educated, how we look at earning opportunities, how we save, how we um, how we expand our curiosity and our learning, if we did not change, then we're just doomed because the very system that we were born into does not allow us to stay in the same types of career paths and education paths. It doesn't exist anymore, Hannah. It doesn't exist anymore. It has changed. So... You can argue and say, okay, the social contract is broken. Yeah, well, if that's what you call it, it's broken because the employment for life doesn't exist anymore. Gosh, I wish I could put you in front of a group that I was talking to last week. 
I, so imagine this, I'm sitting in a group, it's all parents. Um, I just launched a tech venture where we're going to be helping students, like 15 to 20 year old students with, who have no college experience to take the skills, the skills that they have from years of, you know, doing social media, videography, setting up their own Google Drive, all these things that students do naturally, and these businesses who need them and pairing them together in basically what's going to be the match.com for micro internships. So anyway, we're working on this tech venture. So I'm meeting with these parents in a, in a student focus group. And I'm telling you, Carlos, this is sad. But the conversation we got stuck on the whole time, the whole two hours, was the parents telling me, my child does not need to be getting digital skills or practicing digital, you know, being in digital sort of work environments because they need to have the grit and resilience to get in a ditch and dig it, a literal ditch. Like basically they need to have the resilience to show up on a, on a trade job. Now, of course, I'm not discounting the importance of trade jobs, but there, you mentioned five, five industries that have refused to change. I would assume, you can tell me if I'm wrong, but I would assume one of them is our entire manufacturing slash trade sort of industry because they have not realized that if they don't automate quickly, they're not going to have a workforce anymore because all those kids, all these Gen Zers are realizing if I start working in, you know, in, in a manufacturing assembly line position, I'm not going to have enough money to live until I'm 100. So we're changing how we work. But nonetheless, we had this group of parents, probably 30 in a circle, trying to talk through these, these situations of how do we take the skills students have and get them on a faster track to entering careers and getting experience so that they can then decide either, you know, I now know exactly what I want to major in instead of wasting time. I'm going to go straight for this degree. Um, or maybe they have a network by the time they get through these internships that offers them a full-time job because they have these natural inherent skills and creativity that they would not have if they went through four more years of test prep. So the yeah. point being, without getting you know too long-winded here, these parents were still stuck on this idea that their kid needs to, for four summers in a row, flip burgers or go work at a construction firm and dig ditches instead of the machine doing it because that teaches them grit. And I'm sitting over here thinking exactly what you just shared, which is if we don't prepare kids earlier and earlier for real skills and how to acquire new training and ideas um, every couple of years or honestly, continuously, then we're setting our society up for a major collapse because our kids will not actually have the skills necessary to end up at 80 or 90 with some form of retirement. So anyway, I'm off my soapbox, but... No, I think, uh, I, think I wish it had been in front of the parent. It had been a very useful experience. And what, what oftentimes the parents get hang up at the fact that A, they're operating on their model and on their view of the world and they react to that the kids are spending too much screen time and they they said they need a street smart. And I think we are all in agreement. You need to be, you, you need to have a street smart and, and you probably is useful to dig a ditch once in your lifetime. So at least you know what it is. I'm not against that. But the reality is 
that manufacturing is not in one of the five, already is a given that manufacturing is already transformed or being transformed. So the reality is that many of our jobs are being replaced by robots. And these robots are either blue collar or white collar. But let me share with you one step beyond of a replacement of a job. There are many highly paid uh, medical professionals, doctors, who made upper middle class income by looking at an image, a part of your body, whether it came from a CAT scan, a, an MRI, a biopsy, it doesn't matter. It's an image of something of, of your cells, of your body, and making a diagnostic. So the typical job is you're a radiologist, you're a pathologist, you, if somebody takes years, years and years of training and certification that look at this image and issue a diagnostic. And today, and in the next five years, we are going to have artificial intelligence robots, digital slaves, who do that faster, better, and cheaper. And if I am a pathologist, I'm going to argue, what happened to my social contract? Society promised to me that if I'm a good boy or girl, I go to college, go to university, take all these classes, do the residency, take all these exams, certification, board certification, I should be enabled to earn an upper middle class income. And now suddenly your technology is making my job totally obsolete. And they feel wronged, I'm sure, right? Like what? <laughs> you told me I get this degree, I have this job, I'm guaranteed that for life. And here along comes all this innovation that's disrupting what I expected to have. So healthcare is one of the areas being disrupted. You know, before the pandemic, it was very rare that we would do telemedicine. Now telemedicine is the thing to do. But the interesting thing is when I do telemedicine, where the physician is in the same neighborhood or in the same city, or it is in Nepal, doesn't matter anymore. And if I get a far better service in Nepal, I'm picking Nepal, it could be any country, which is far better and much cheaper, then nothing prevents me from getting those services in Nepal. Absolutely. And so, the entire dynamic is just, it's like having a table with the, with the, the tablecloth ripped out from underneath the social contracts, the expectations that have been built. But the reality is that this disruption are happening to every single industry. And as long as it doesn't affect us and we're the beneficiary, it's fine. You know, we all went through photography from the traditional photography to the digital photography. And we all embrace it because of the great benefits. But if you go and ask a photographer, the photographer in your neighborhood that make a middle-class living 
by shooting photos and then going to the dark room and doing what he did with the chemistry and the liquids and so forth, he suddenly found himself or herself out of a job in very few years. So the metaphor of the photographer that we kind of ignore because most of us benefit from digital photography is happening in every single area. The moment that I am affected, then it becomes the end of the war. But right. it's happening to all of us. It's happening to all of us. And the more we can do, and, and maybe you would have an, an additional perspective to this, but from mine, as a native digital myself, I come from a perspective of whether you take, you know, career pathways, you take earning potential, you take, like, literally take any topic, take any traditional model, my generation would say, how can I break my learning up? Or how can I break my experience of that up into as many small parts as possible, instead of congesting them into one pathway, so that I can make sure my entire life is built agilely so that I have this agile perspective and can simply bounce from one thing to another. It's like the difference between a career ladder and a jungle gym. It's like we might want to play a little bit on the swings and then go play a little bit on the carousel and then go play a little bit on the slides versus taking a you know shot that says you have to go to college, then you land a job, and then you grow your way up the, the ladder or climb up the ladder no, it's, and, and you can take that career example and apply it to literally everything else and, and, and come out in the end, I believe a more well-rounded person by, instead of resisting the innovation saying, how do we embrace it and build our lives around a, a pathway that also embraces the changes that are happening? I think what is total agreement, what is making really challenging for everybody, the, the older generation that want the best for their children, and then the, the children themselves, is that the things are changing at such a fast pace that there are no positive role models that we can refer, that has as a reference. And because of these thing that we augment so much the negative and the failures and the adverse consequence of impact, it, we sort of lose sight that there is a lot of good things happening. And those are the things. And yes, mistakes have been made. But as an entrepreneur, we look at mistakes and failures as a learning opportunities. And that transform the failure into a positive because we have all learned about it. So I think I think this is one of the significant change, uh, challenges that we face in particular your generation as, as digital natives because of the extraordinary speed of change. And the fact that you don't have models that you can serve as a reference to say, oh, that's the way I did it, or, or I could do it, because this is what others tell me 
what are the steps that I need to take? Thank you for that. And such a good way to close out this conversation. I I could talk to you for hours about this and and there's topics that we didn't even touch whatsoever, but thank you, Carlos. This has been so good and I can't wait for people to hear just what this looks like from a global perspective, whether it's diversity or innovation or venture. I mean, it's it's incredible. So thank you so much for, for being on the show and taking and the time to talk to me. If I can add a, as a closing is, the diversity of the way we solve problems, of the problem-solving approaches, it makes it so powerful well, because if we have a very diverse team that comes together to solve a problem, a challenge that affects all of us, we're going to find solutions that they are going to be extraordinarily powerful and useful for us and for society. So good. Anna, <laughs> thank you. Thank you for the invitation. I so appreciate you and you're welcome back anytime. I hope you invite me again. Bye now. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Native Digital, Native Analog Show. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you would subscribe, leave a rating and review, and tell your friends. If you're looking to connect and talk more about attracting and retaining Native Digitals, you can reach me at hannahgwilliams.com. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. Yeah.